So without taking up any more of his time, I'll give you Denny C. from Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, thank you, Danny. Uh, you made it short and sweet. I feel like I've been shot out of a cannon already. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I was one of these things, and a guy introduced me, and he got up and he said, uh, he started, and then he said, uh, I see there are a lot of you never heard my story. And if you're a speaker and a guy gets up and starts talking like that, you get worried. And uh, uh, I look around, you know, I've been here since Friday, listening to all this stuff that's been going on this weekend from the beginning of Sterling on Friday night, that enthusiastic fellow from California. Uh, and then uh, Betty and, and Bob, and a lot of history, a lot of history here about the movement of this program that we uh, come here and chair this morning. And then the fellow last night, I can't think of his name, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and it's, it's really been a wonderful weekend, and I've enjoyed it very much, and, uh, and I'd like to uh, thank the committee, I'd like to thank Jack for his hospitality, of course I haven't got out of here yet, but, uh, <laughs> but it's been a wonderful weekend, it's good to be here, and it's uh, good to see some people I know, uh, I was in this building in 1974, and, uh, and I've been in this building since then uh, for various AA functions, and it's good to be back in Louisville and see some old friends. And like I said, I've been hanging around here for a few days, and uh, you know, you, you know, about everything's been said. Is, you know, what what do you do this morning? But wiggle your ears and say a little prayer and get up here. And uh, it reminds me of I'm glad to get up here finally. You you know, three days is a long time to wait. And, <laughs> and it. It reminds me of, I've told it about every time I talk, so I'm going to tell it again, but uh, it reminds me of a story back in my part of the country. They say that they had a convention years ago, and they had one of these long-winded speakers. And uh, he got up, and the first hour he talked about the 12 steps. Second hour he got into 12 traditions. And gradually people began to leave a little, and then he got into the three legacies, and, and by God, everybody left at one man. He kept sitting on the front row. kept sitting on the front row, and... Uh, and naturally, the speaker got concerned, so he wound up his talk, ran down from the podium, grabbed the man by the hand, and said, I want to ask you one question. Everybody left but you. Why did you stay? And he said, hell, I'm the next speaker. Well, <laughs> man, you know how I feel, don't you? I'm an alcoholic. My name's Dave Cook. Hi, everybody. I'm a member of the Big Book Group in Raleigh, North Carolina, which I think is the finest group in the whole wide world. And if you don't think the same thing about your home group, then maybe you need to find another one. By God's grace, and because this program works for me, through the help of some understanding sponsors who led me with a kind but firm hand, and through the love of a loving wife that I found as a result of this program, and through the help of many people in Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found necessary to take a drink or any tablets since the day I've come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was September the 12th, 1957. Now, I don't give my sobriety date to impress you. Uh, sometimes it impresses the hell out of me, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I give it for two reasons and two reasons only. I come into Al Alcoholics Anonymous in Roanoke, Virginia in uh, 1957, and uh, the, the second meeting I ever went to in AA was a discussion meeting. And they had 13 or 14 wicked chairs sitting in a circle. 
And and I was no different from anybody else that goes to our first discussion meeting. You know, I, I began to wonder what I was going to say when it got to me. And it finally got to me, and the man who was to become my first sponsor spoke up and told me what to say. He said, give your name and your sobriety date. That's all you're qualified to do. And, uh, and you know, it makes sense when you think about it. And then after the meeting, he explained to me in rather detail that that was all I was going to be allowed to do for the next year, was to give my name and my sobriety date. And that's about the way it was. And the second reason is... Uh, and that old central group in Roanoke, uh, they had a saying that if you were a member of that group, it was, if it was your home group, you got behind that podium, you didn't give you sobriety dates, you usually didn't have one. So that's the reason I give it. You know, uh, I've received a lot of benefits from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of things I call marginal benefits, such as peace of mind, some security, some happiness, a few material things, and, uh, a little serenity, uh, but any time I talk about marginal benefits, I have to think about the basic benefits I've received. And the basic benefit that I've received from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous beyond my sobriety, and that's the sobriety came first, the basic benefit that I've received is my sanity. My sanity. And today as a sane alcoholic, I find I don't have to run anymore. I don't have to cheat anymore. I don't have to lie or steal anymore. And uh, most important of all, I don't have to sober up anymore. And I didn't know that was the name of the game when I got here, sobering up. Now, I've spent over half my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I stand before you here today, and, uh, and I think back. I think back how close I came from missing the boat of being able to be here today. I look back, and, uh, and, and the miracle is there. And sometimes I think we take it for granted. And I never want to forget how I got here. I never want to forget how I got here. And how I got here was a simple fact of one drink, one drunk talking to another drunk, a man that had no knowledge of me or what I was or where I came from, that had the time to spend with me and tell me about this program. And I never want to forget it. Now, I, uh, I, I took my first drink when I was 16 years of age in college. I knew what booze could, good, good, could do to a grown man. It, it, my father was an alcoholic. I didn't know I got that. You know, I didn't know anything about it until I got an alcoholic anonymous. Uh, uh, because of his drinking, it led to a divorce in my home when I was 12 years of age. And my mother was able to clothe me and feed me and give me a good education. Went off to college and studied engineering and started doing strange things. After I started drinking a little, uh, my freshman year, and I had a good time drinking. I didn't know much about it, but I worked hard at it. And, and you know, we do work hard at it. And, uh, had a little trouble in the beginning getting it down and growing up and all that stuff. And, and I, this was the era that when older people like Jack Sullivan had just come back from the World War. And, uh, and I was just a young kid and these people knew how to drink and I was in this environment. And you adjusted that environment and uh, I adjusted that environment. And one night, uh, you know, they were talking about the pleasure that comes from drinking and I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. So I was throwing up for the time and getting it down and working real hard at it. And I asked one of them one night, when did the pleasure come? And he said, Dave, never forgotten. If you remember, there's a little pause in between from the time you take the drink and when you throw up, that's when the pleasure comes. And uh, I went ahead and I started doing strange things about my senior year. And uh, because of my basketball ability, I, I was offered a job coaching high school basketball when I got out of college down in eastern North Carolina where I was raised. 
And I got in the coaching profession at 20 years of age and uh, had some success in it, fell upstairs in the coaching profession. And I look back now and uh, out all of this is hindsight. I don't recall that I had any particular problems in the beginning drinking. Uh, on the weekends, we might get together and have a little. And then about the third year, uh, when I w went to a larger school and another community and around important people, I began to drink more and wasn't long before I was drinking about every night in a short period of time. I found myself being around school board members that drank. And that gave me a place to go about every night. Social drinking, I guess, is what you call it. I don't know. I had, had some fun, but it wasn't long before I began to let go of my responsibilities. Began to get in trouble and uh, from my drinking. As a matter of fact, I remember the day that the principal called me in and talked to me about my drinking for the first time. And I denied it. I resented it and got mad about it. And it uh, wasn't long before he called me in again. And I got mad at it. And then, the, you know, uh, in sobriety, we, you know, we speak of the alcohol being coming back from the power. And it's true about, uh, before we got here, you know, we are coming back from the powerful in our, our alcoholism and, uh, what I decided to do, I'd get these people off my back. I decided, you know, divert their attention. So, uh, what I did is, uh, I decided I'd get married. And, uh, thank you. Uh, I decided I'd get married, so I, I courted a girl for about two weeks in the community, and we got married, and uh, I got their attention, and uh, and I've never blamed her for any of my drinking. Now, this was a mistake from the very beginning. And, you know, the, the realistic thing about the sickness of alcoholism is I know now that it really does affect the family because there was nobody but her and me. And through the lessons of Al-Anon, I know this, that this woman was affected by my alcoholism way back then because... For a year and a half, after we found out that this was a mistake, for a year and a half, we lived together because of the fact that it would be embarrassing for a high school coach to get a divorce in the community. But yet, by now, I was about the community drunk. Now, this is, this is, this is thinking that leads to alcoholism, and alcoholism in its worst. And finally, uh, I just began to get in more trouble, more trouble. Write checks. You know, I never written a check that I wasn't going to make good the next morning. I don't know about you. And, uh, it got to be a, a weekly habit. Of the, uh, my mother for a long time was financially able to help me a lot. Now, I had a mother that loved me to death. You know what I mean? I was the only boy, and she loved me to death, and, uh, and she was supplementing my income along then. You weren't making much money coaching ball and teaching, and, uh, back in the fifties, and, and, uh, <laughs> I, uh, finally got in some serious trouble, uh, in the middle of the year, this last year, I was this particular school, uh, the girls' basketball coach had to go in service, and they asked me to take over the team. And uh, now I was going to these ball games about half sized up. Now I was drinking vodka, you know, it leaves you breathless, and uh, <laughs> nobody could smell it. And now I wasn't drunk. Now I want you to understand, but I was loose, you know, <laughs> just moving along slowly. You know what I mean? Just that good gait. I mean, uh, no worries, no problems, just smooth and loose is the only way I know how to describe it. And uh, I had, uh, this first night with these girls, uh, just before the tip-off, I had them in the huddle, got ready to get them out there, and I'd been hitting them boys on the reel for years. And so, you know what I did, and uh, I started tapping them a little, and and some people got upset in the stands, it was the parents mostly, but, uh, and I really, like, I really, 
I really didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, I, I thought somebody had done something wrong up there, and uh, and it was kind of pandemonium there for a few minutes, and then the, needless to say, the school board met the next morning, and, uh, and that was the beginning of my downfall of this particular school, and uh, at this time, uh, I had to resign, not only because of that, because of my drinking in the community. It became a community fact that I was drinking excessively, and everybody knew it. And then I was offered a job, a much larger, not a much larger school, but a school down east. And my, in my part of the country, uh, you keep moving east, and you get out there where there's nothing else left. And, uh, <laughs> and I just kept on moving, and, uh, and this was the rock bottom of schools. It really was. It was the rock bottom of schools, and uh, I remember the day I signed the contract, the principal had to sign my name. That's the God's truth. He knew what he was getting. And... Uh, uh, this was a rural consolidated school. I was living in another town about 12 miles from there, and this wife had already left. And, uh, and the only way I can describe my drinking had got to the point that time that I was getting up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and I had booze in to drink enough booze to stop shaking so I could get my clothes on, you know, and shave and get gussied up to go to that schoolhouse and, and begin to perform. I knew what was going to happen about 12. The shakes would come back. So I'd have some headed to gym days in my automobile where I could take a few shots, take stop the chase, and pray for three o'clock when I'd get in that automobile and start back to town, stop at the store and get some more liquor and do it up. It went on for about six and a half months. Now prior to this, a couple of times, my mother had intervened. I'd got a sabbatical leave from the school system on account of my nervous breakdown. Uh, I'd been up and down the East Coast several hospitals for my nervous breakdowns, the places that, you know, there were no treatment centers as such then. Uh, they were called drying out places. And uh, I enjoyed a few of them because, uh, well, what you did, you got there and they just tapered you off. Now, I don't know about you. I enjoyed tapering off. Uh, never was a success at it. Uh, I just sat down and tapered off. And, you know, tapering off, you take a few sips and sips and sips and sips. And uh, I'd come back in worse shape than when I went. And... Uh, Mother was spending good money and sent me to a few psychiatrists to take a look at me, and, and she wasted some good money. And, uh, but this particular time, uh, one day at school, uh, this man had had enough, and uh, he just stopped me in the hall. Just stopped me in the hall and said, Dave, we don't need you any longer. There was no conscience. Didn't call me in the office to talk about this thing. We didn't discuss it all, said all we needed is the keys. And I've looked back many times, and I really believe in my own heart this was it. I know for a fact I didn't cross that invisible line that we call alcoholism by this time. Now, this is a strange thing that I don't understand about this disease, even today in sobriety. Uh, even as the, the, the people that I've worked with in sobriety sponsoring, the people that I've watched, even in my own cases, the people that have come yet, and that's the inability of the alcoholic to see himself as he really is in his worst moments. I could not see myself as I really was. I didn't know what truth was. I could honestly deceive myself. Now, that's sick. That's sick. I could not see myself as I really was. All of the problems I had were other people. Now, I'd experienced some blackouts prior to this. Never no prolonged blackouts. I left school that day, and I don't know where I went. I found out later. I don't know where I went for a period of about two weeks, but I woke up in jail for the first time in my life in the city where I was living. A man began to talk to me through a cell door one morning. And he said, son, we're going to send you to a place where they can cure you. Now, I didn't know what this man was talking about. 
But what I was, my immediate thought was I was going to one of those places where I could, you know, paper off. I'd go to sit in a lone chair on an umbrella on some soft green grass and chip a little. And I really thought that's where I was going. And that's now what, no, that's not where I went. I'll tell you that. Huh? <laughs> uh, I was stayed in St. Asylum. It's called Dick's Hill. And I've often said, I too found my thrill on Dick's Hill. Uh, <laughs> went to Dick's Hill my first time when I was 27 years of age. And so help me God, as long as I draw a sober breath, as long as I draw a sober breath, I never want to forget my first trip to Dick's Hill. Uh, the first few days they put me in what they called the inebriate ward. I didn't know what it meant then, but it sounded pretty good. And, and I've often said that, you know, in sobriety, we, you know, I think there are different environments in sobriety, and there were different environments in my drinking, and there were different environments in Dick Field. And I adjusted that environment in Dick Field. I was around a bunch of people the first few days that chased squirrels most of the time. They'd run up and down the walls, and under the chairs, under the beds, and so when you're in Rome, you do like the Romans do, so I started chasing squirrels, too. And I got pretty good at it. Uh, never caught one, come down close a couple of times, but, uh, and so I chased them. And, uh, and then one day, they carried me down the building, and, and it was just a matter of about two weeks, and they put me down in the basement. They called it Skid Row, as I later found out. And what it was, it was a padded cell, and they took my clothes away from me and let me have my running fits. And I had them, too. And days later, when I got through having my running fits, they carried me back upstairs and put me in a room and I, with another man. And, I, and I, allowed, I was allowed to do the only thing I could do for the next 30-some-odd days. I would walk up and down the day in and day out, nighttime, too, wondering what in the hell I was doing there. Because I began to look around me, and there was nobody there my age. The men were a lot older. The men were a lot older than I, and I, I thought somebody had made a mistake. One night, some men were playing poker. They were using matchsticks for chips, and, uh, and they began to discuss the reasons they were there. And I heard one man speak up and says, I'm here because my wife wanted to get rid of me. And that kind of rang a bell with me. You know, my mother wanted to get rid of me, I thought. My mother had done everything. She spent a lot of money, and she did the only thing she need to, needed to do at that time, or knew to do. And then I heard this man speak up, and I've always called the man with the face. I can see his face this morning just like it was 30-some years ago. And this man spoke up and said, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. When I heard the word, I resisted the word for the very word itself because I began to play a game that was to plague me until I got the alcoholic phenomenon. That was compared to my drinking with my father's drinking because I, at that time I considered my father an alcoholic. Never liked him. I'd never be like that. And that was to plague me until I got the other. And then uh, I'd been down for about time, and you know, the day came that I had to leave, I didn't have, have anywhere to go. I didn't have, I lost everything I'd accumulated. Home, cars, wife, career, thrown out of the window. Thrown out of the window because the world was against me. And the day I left there, I had one place to go, and that was back to my mother's home. My mother took me in just like you do your kid on the afternoon when he comes from school, and here's a man 27, close to 28 years of age then, back home to my hometown, and people asked me, what are you doing? You know, at that time and age, you, you were there for special occasions, or weddings, or holidays, or something. And uh, you're not, you know, where, what are you doing home? Well, I've had another nervous breakdown, and and uh, you don't tell them you've been in Dick's Hill. Hell no. That's where, that's where the Goonie people go in there. Uh, you say they've been in the hospital, state hospital. And so the good family doctor, uh, uh, 
close friend in the family. Uh, God, he protected me for so long. Uh, he didn't know anything about alcoholism at that time. He knows a great deal about it today. He's retired. And, and he was always worried about my nerves. And the third day I was home, he called me to his office and went by. And, uh, now, I don't know a thing about drugs. don't know anything about pills. But I do know a great deal about tablets. And the good doctor gave me some tablets to take. <laughs> now, you talking about being loose. That's another world, you know. And I took them as they were prescribed for about the first day, and then you know what I did. And uh, so I became a tablet man for a while there. And and you got to understand this. I was I was at home, and I was running around with a crowd I'd been in school with, and, and going to restaurants and so forth at night, you know, uh, in the community, and a uh, very successful bunch of people. Uh, and <laughs> I just got out of Dick's Hill running around in a, in a fog with these tablets. And, the only, you know, the thing that I remember most about tablets is this, is, uh, <laughs> is stoplights, you know, red, green, and yellow. There was one up there that said, go ahead, Dave, it's all right. You know, <laughs> didn't, it didn't make no difference. Just go ahead, you know. Now, that's being loose. Uh, and, uh, I mean, well, uh, what happened? I'd been at home about nine weeks, and, uh, and I'd run around this crowd. They were, they were drinking, and I was taking my medicine. And uh, one night, the bottle was passed, and I decided to have a drink. And I took a drink, and, and as we know today, and I was surprised that the compulsion set in, and, and one drink called for another, and in just a matter of a few days, I was back in the place I said I'd never go to the little Dixfield. I went back to Dixfield five times in six months. On account of one fact, as I know it today, I become an alcoholic. I become an I, I become a person that take one drink, and I could no longer guarantee my behavior. To me, that's what an alcoholic is. I could take one drink, and I couldn't tell you what was going to happen after that. The last time I was in Dixfield, they put me in the nut part of the bug house instead of the drying out part, and there is a distinct difference. Uh, I found out about straitjackets. I found out about how you live better electrically. I found out about that too. And, and uh, you remember that. Uh, and I began to accept my fate that I, would, uh, I was just one of those people. Now, people have been around me this weekend don't see me eating biscuits. I don't eat biscuits anymore. Uh, one of the chores was uh, sitting down with these people and trying to eat biscuits. Uh, you'd say, pass the biscuits, and uh, you'd get them in your face. And these people were nuts. But I was right there with them. And uh, I got a paper to prove it. <laughs> but we have a, a word in our AA, AA vocabulary. It's in everybody's vocabulary. But you hear it spoke of quite a bit in alcoholic phenomena, coincidence. Coincidence happened. One day at Dick's Hill, and, and there had been a lot of coincidences in my life before I ever got to alcoholic phenomena. I think God was looking me over then. One day... They came and got me out of that nut ward and put me over with the rest of the drunks. And I'd been there so much, they more or less made me an honorary attendant. Um, they let me work in the kitchen and the cafeteria and uh, go get the mail and things like that. And one day, uh, three other fellows and myself decided we'd leave. And, uh, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but we escaped. We ran like hell. And, uh, <laughs> and back in those days, we were like cops and robbers. I mean, they had that place fenced off and security and everything. And uh, it was, you just didn't leave. They let them walk up and down the streets now in Raleigh. Uh, it don't make no difference. Uh. <laughs>
with James, you know. <laughs> and I go by that place quite often once in a while just to remind myself. And I don't know how we got over that fence, but uh, that afternoon we were in one of the downtown hotels watching the local news, and the news came on, and they were announced about three, four men had just escaped from, criminal insane men had just left Dick Hill. <laughs> and we were sitting there wondering who the hell it is. And, uh, uh, yeah, we we're really sick people, and, uh, and sure enough, uh, finally, uh, the, the people that ran the hotel began to put two and two together, and we were kicked out of there that afternoon. Another hotel, and a few days later, uh, we split up, and, and then a friend of the family that saw me on the streets in Raleigh, uh, I was raised down in eastern North Carolina, sent me, put me on a bus to send me back to my mother's home. Uh, he didn't know what else to do now. And I got back to my hometown. Unbeknownst to me, my mother had, uh, that carried her to Richmond, Virginia, to be in a home. I broke into the home where I was raised and uh, raised a lot of hell and got drunk and borrowed off friends until I bought mother home and found me. And I don't know about y'all, but I don't know who you, you know who they are, but uh, uh, that afternoon they got together when they found me and uh, called me downstairs. And uh, they are those people that get in one room in the den and put you in the adjoining room and crack the door. And they begin to talk about how much they love you. Of what they got to do, and uh, and they made a decision, and, and they at that time were my two sisters, were younger than I, and uh, I friend of the family was like a father to me. And uh, the decision they had reached, uh, they wanted me to leave that part of the country. And they gave me a wad of money, and uh, and I mean it was a wad, and uh, I could have gone to the West Coast and lived good for a while, and uh, and I began to think it was a pretty good idea, right? That the one that gave me that green stuff, you know, there's nothing in the world that a practicing alcoholic likes any more than get a little green on his hip. And, and I began to agree with him. I thought it was the proper thing to do. And, uh, and so I left home that afternoon uh, to go out west for somewhere, and I went west for four miles. Uh, <laughs> to a little neighboring town, fell into a big hotel, and, uh, well, it was big in my mind at that time. And, uh, oh, well, it was a railroad town, and, uh, and I had a lot of friends there for a few months, as long as I had the money and the ventures, and nobody knew where I was in the family, and uh, I guess I'd been over there about four weeks, and then one day uh, the money ran out, and so I, I reverted back to things I've always done when I needed that I'd get me some money, so I went over home, went over to my hometown, I bought an outboard motor. I didn't have a boat, but I bought a motor, <laughs> and, you know, I wrote a big check, pick up the motor and get the change, and pick up the motor later, and uh, they called my mother to tell me that my motor was ready, and uh, she put two and two together. And that afternoon, John Law found me in that hotel, and I was carried back to my hometown, put in jail again. Three blocks from my mother's home, and I was there for several weeks. Uh, I couldn't understand what I was being taught. I didn't understand it. And, uh, and one night, I got to raising hell down there in that cell, and I finally got him down there, that jailer. And he said, what's the problem? I said, I want to talk to my attorney. And he said, who is your attorney? I told him. He said, talk to him all you want to. He's in the next cell block. And sure enough, he was. <laughs> and... Uh, and he couldn't do me any good. Uh. <laughs> now, uh, we say God works in mysterious ways. This man later found Alcoholics Anonymous and was successful in the program and became a state legislator in my hometown. And uh, he died sober. And so, but he couldn't help me that night. And uh, and uh, you have to understand this. Uh, my sister was city clerk, and the next door neighbor, my mother was a city solicitor. They took me upstairs in the court of law and tried me something I didn't know I'd done on a previous month. And uh, and the next day, they took me to another courthouse, and I was tried for something I didn't know I'd. And then I, they sent me down east, 
And uh, down east, as I said earlier, in my part of the country, you get down there where it's all in. And the great business swamp. And I've often, you know, when I first got sober, I didn't want to talk about it. And, but my sponsor says, you got to. And uh, I've always been ashamed of it. I'm still ashamed of it. But if it took this for me to get the alcoholic on board, and I really do believe for me it took this because I was put on a chain gang and worked harder than ever worked in my life. And I got a lot of friends down there because I had an education. I got my smoke in the back and soda pop by writing letters, you know, for them and worked hard, worked hard. Now, I'd heard about alcoholics novels one time before. Well, several times in that nut house, they'd have meetings on Sunday afternoon and some guy from Raleigh would come over, some of them, and put on a program. I was the guy that in the back of the room raised hell to most of the meetings. Made fun of it. You know what I mean? You know, I was told about two years and I realized one day, every Sunday afternoon, they left and I stayed. <laughs> you know, we're slow thinkers. Uh. And I'd heard about AA then, and then there was a man in my hometown uh, named J.T. He's dead now. And J.T., my mother, made, a, a, made arrangements for me later, which what happened is this man in this camp who was a superintendent, he let me come over one afternoon and cut his grass and have dinner with him and his wife. He was a young man. And he began to talk to me one out uh, several nights about maybe drinking was my problem. And I said, no, I don't think it is. I was too young to be, you know, have any drinking. Yeah, I, my brain had been about tickled by then. But, uh, you know, a few places, uh, drying out places, Dick Hill, nothing wrong with me. And uh, and uh, I guess the seed was planted then because the day I left there, I didn't have anywhere to go. But I went back to my home again, back to my mother, and my mother took me back in. And she loved me just like she did when I was a kid and helped me. And it was then that I promised, you know, I kind of made a vow to myself I wouldn't get, you know, I, not the word sobriety, I just wouldn't drink anymore for her. And I don't recommend this before AA after AA. Don't do it for some night. And it, what intervened then was my second encounter, really, with Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, JT, the old time in my hometown, my mother made arrangements for him to talk to me. And he, he carried me down to Eastern North Carolina to a man who came out to Cleveland, and Dr. Bob helped him, named Vernon Strickland. Vernon was a successful lawyer. Lost his practice on the county of drinking, came out here in the Ohio area and got a hold of him. Dr. Bob sobered him up, and years later he came back and started his law practice again. He was one that started the first group in eastern North Carolina. He took me down to talk to Vernon, and I'll never forget that now. Old Vernon sat down and talked to me about alcoholism, Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and what he could do and so forth, and he got through, and he said, what do you think? And I said, well, Vernon, I'm, I think I'm too young to be an alcoholic. And I've never forgotten what Vernon said. He said, well, son, says, I'll tell you what you do. You keep drinking, and be patient, and you'll find out. <laughs> and by God, I found out about a year later because of what happened to me. Uh, uh, I, I stayed sober then, and, uh, and I stayed dry. And one day it was suggested maybe I should go to work. And I hadn't worked in quite a while, and uh, I didn't think I could get a job teaching the state of North Carolina. So through some agencies up in Richmond, Virginia, I was interviewed in several states in a period of about a week. My mother carried me to these places to talk to these people. And one afternoon, we wound up in Roanoke, Virginia, and a man began to talk to me, a student of city schools, and, and when he got through, uh, he said, well, i got to find out about something about you. I gave him some references, got on the telephone, because they were desperate. It was close to opening the school, and a week before. And uh, he came back and said, son, says, I understand you had a problem with drinking at one time, but that's your cured now. And, well, I didn't know what he meant, but it was all right with me, and I said, yes, sir, uh, uh, I, I stopped drinking, and I think I am cured. And he said, well, we want you to go to work for you. That was on a particular Friday, and the following 
three days later, I went back to my hometown. My mother financed the whole thing. Now, here's a man that, in spite of where I'd been, had a new start in life. New start in life in spite of where I'd been. And she financed the whole thing. I had a place to stay, a nice home to stay when I got there. New clothes, a bankroll, a new life, really. And I started back to Roanoke three days later. I had to change buses in Richmond, Virginia. And I decided I'd have one drink. But about two pints. And this was the beginning of my last drunk, the only drunk that I really like to talk about, because this is the drunk that got me to alcoholics. I got to Roanoke, and I didn't check into the place where I was uh, supposed to stay. I checked into the big hotel on the hill, began to drink a little, and uh, five days later, I worked five days, and then the fifth day, I got back to the morning drink, and in two weeks, I was in the throes of alcoholism as I've never been experienced before. And in the middle way this drunk, my mother got in touch with me, and uh, the principal, or the superintendent, got in touch with her, and she had enough. She, my mother got on the phone and gave me the greatest gift that I've ever been given since the day I was born. And that's when she kicked me out of her life, and I knew she meant it. And a few days later, I was kicked out of that hotel, and I wound up on the skid. The school officials tried to help me, did what they could, then they gave up. And I wound up on the streets in Ronald, Virginia. On Sunday, September 11, 1957, I was in the back alley in my skid row in downtown Ronald, trying to get a drink of liquor down, and my moment of truth finally came. Because that morning it seemed like to me a leaf, you could hear a leaf fall. Everything, it seemed like to me the earth stopped moving. Everything was quiet. And it, it came to me that what I was doing, I was killing myself, that I would die from it. I had enough self-respect that I wanted to get out of that back alley. I didn't take the drink. I didn't take the drink. And, and at this time I thought I was a leper. I really did. I thought I was the only person on God's green earth like me, and I didn't know what to do. And I cried out for some help. God help me. And maybe it was a coincidence, I don't know. But the only man that knew me in that city on a really on a first name basis was the superintendent of school. He'd been looking for me for a couple of days. And he found me. Now he didn't know anything about drunk or alcoholics or AA. He just wanted to help a human being. And he know my he, he knew my mother wouldn't help me. And he found me and carried me to his home on this particular Sunday afternoon, got in touch with a man that knew a man in alcoholics anonymous. And that afternoon I was carried to a 12-step clubhouse in downtown Ronald called the Easy Does It Club. <laughs> and I'll never want to forget that first day. Uh, I'd gotten to the point that I hurt all over. My hair hurt, my toenails hurt, sick and tired of being sick and tired, tired of the high cost of low living, and that's what it is. <laughs> and uh, and I remember them carrying me up. Uh, you know, I... I was rum dumb, I wasn't drunk, I was hit, I couldn't find oblivion anymore, just a zombie is what I was. I could move, but people had to help me. And they carried me up those steps, and by God, you looked me over when I came, we say we we're going to look them over, by God, you looked me over, because what I had was what I had on. What I had is what I had on when I got to you. And uh, these two gentlemen, the principal and the superintendent, began to talk to some people, and there was an old man standing in the right-hand corner. I never got behind a podium, I don't mention him. His name was Old Man John. We called him Old Man John. And he wiggled his finger to me, and I, and I waddled over to him, and he put his arm around my shoulder and said, Son, says, all you got to do is listen to these people and do what they tell you to do, and you never have to be alone anymore. You never have to be alone anymore. All you got to do is do what these people tell you to do, and you never have to be alone anymore. Now, what I didn't know then... But what old man John was telling me 
Well, the first few lines of chapter 5 where it says, Rarely have we seen a person say over his fellow, I thoroughly followed our path. That's what he was telling. And this man, I had enough sense to know that if I wanted ever what they had, and I didn't know what it was, I didn't have to go out that door anymore if I could do what they tell me to do. Now, this man rang my bell. Now, we hear this tale of this day and time of different kinds of alcoholics. I don't know but two kinds, drunk ones and sober. <laughs> and uh, this old man rang my bell. He really did. He rang my bell, and, and I loved him because... Uh, let me tell you about old man John. We talk about identification. I identified through this old man. He came to age when he was 76 years of age, 76 years of age, and died at 82 with six continuous years of sobriety. I helped birth him. And this man gave me the magic words that day. And so, uh, old man John got through talking to me, and then some people began to talk to me a little, and I began to shake a little, and I said something about a drink. He said, we don't do it that way. He said, if you get too bad, we're going to get you a doctor. And then I said something about some tablets, and I thought I'd started a revolution. <laughs> Really? And then they said, well, uh, drink some coffee. Drink some coffee. Now, I want to say something, and uh, I hope I don't offend anybody here this afternoon, but, or this morning, but, uh, I've always contended, and I still contend, that there are a hell of a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous ain't got no business making coffee. And, uh, <laughs> and that was one of those days. That stuff was ropey, it just hung, and, and they said, drink it, and I thought it was, I really thought it was a requirement, and, uh, and so I drank the damn coffee till I got sick, and they carried me to a meeting that night, my first meeting in the old central group, and it was an open meeting, and some guy talked, I remember wanting to go out to wonder and all that stuff, and sitting on my hands, and, uh, and then the important thing is I remember most of all, there's a stranger's complete strangers, walked up to me and gave me the magic words. And if you didn't get them, as far as I'm concerned, you got short change. They told me, he says, uh, we love you, and we understand, and you're going to be all right. That's all they told me. They didn't ask me where I came from, if I had a job, if I had insurance. Nobody asked me that. <laughs> they just said, we love you, and we understand you're going to be all right. And that night it was proved to me I didn't have to be alone anymore because three men got me a room in the YMCA and they stayed with me all night long, talking to me, telling me about the program of alcoholics. That's how I got sober, telling me about the program of alcoholics and And they didn't nurse me. They took turns. I got to shaking. I admit that. And they said, well, if you get too bad, you're going, you're going to get a doctor, but try to, try to do it our way. And I stayed with them all night long and they stayed with me and we talked and we talked and finally the sun came up. And one of them is he dead and gone. The old Claude called said, Dave said, what we do is we just try to do it one day at a time. First time I ever heard it. And so help me God, I really believe, I really believe today that that was when I began to come to believe. I really believe that that's when I come to believe because I knew that morning that maybe I could make it that day but for some reason or another. I had to be around them to do it. I had to be around them to do it. And as I stand here before you this morning, I, I still feel that way. If I make another day, I still got to be around you to do it. And then uh, a few hours later, I was introduced to a man who had become my first sponsor, and he sat down and talked to me, and he told me an awful lot about the program. I thought it was a little bit goony, but uh, <laughs> told me about the promises. I'll never forget that, and this is where you start, and asked me a lot of questions, and all my answers were negative, and he said, well, it seems to me that you're not doing so hot. And, well... <laughs> 
No, I wasn't doing so hot. And, uh, and so he had an agenda for me, and the agenda for me was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I began this journey. This journey that I know today is led to sobriety and where I am today. And uh, I had a lot of, oh God, I had a lot of experiences in my early sobriety, and, and the basics were talked to me, and uh, they put me in a boarding house with, uh, it was five other men and myself. Out of those six men, two of us are sober today. Uh, two of them went back to drinking, uh, and early, back to, when I was living in that house, and uh, one of them later went back to drinking, and one of them killed himself. And one of them's drinking today, and two of us are sober. And uh, I learned much from those men because we had meetings after meetings. I don't know where the income came from my first few months in AA, but it came from somewhere. And then I was blessed by another coincidence. I met my wife, Sue. I'd been sober about three or four months, and uh, I met her. It just accidentally. Sue's never seen me drink, never seen me drunk. But she's been through more hell than my first wife did when I was drinking because she's seen me try to grow up. And that's what I'm still trying to do, grow up in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so uh, I began this journey, and uh, it wasn't long before I got to be uh, active, and it wasn't long before. You know, in that group, they had, a, they had a room in the building they called the inventory room, and by God, that's what it was. They well, in there sometimes, just took your damn inventory, whether you liked it or not, checked it down. <laughs> and... Uh, that's, that's the way it was, and uh, they called me in several times, and, uh, <laughs> and then one night they called me in to talk about my imp employment problem. I've often said that I've found, you know, I've learned much more with, with people with less education than I and al alcoholics than the problem, the, the person that saw my employment problem was a man with a third grade education, a man named uh, Red. He was a sign painter. And one night they called me in there, and I thought it was another inventory, but they were going to talk about me about my problem. And Red was in there. Hell, third grade education, he didn't know nothing. What was he doing in there? And they began to talk, and then Red spoke up and said, Dave, it seems to me that if you studied engineering in college, that's what you ought to be doing in life. Well, hell, nobody ever explained it to me that way before. <laughs> and so... Through Red's help and uh, made our appointment over the Virginia Highway Department over in Salem, which was right there, a community part of Roanoke. Uh, I had an interview with the chief engineer over there, and they took me over there, Sue and Red, one morning, and scared to death. I was scared to death, really. And so I went in and talked to this man. I did what they told me to do, telling the truth, and I told him about my alcoholism, what I was trying to do in AA, and and, and how I got there. And then he said, "Sons, if you're willing to help yourself, we're willing to help you too. When can you go to work?" This was the middle of December. I got sober in September. Scared to death now and full of fear. And uh, I said, well, I've got a lot of things to handle. Uh, didn't have nothing to handle, but uh, it'd be about the first of February before I can go to work. He said, fine, fine. So uh, that was the agreement. So I went out to the car and uh, how did it go? And I told him, got the job. When do you go to work? I told him what happened. They carried my ass right back in there. And... Uh, I worked until about three years ago when I retired, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're slow learners, we're slow learners, uh, but I had many, many interesting things happen to me along then, and, uh, it wasn't long before I got some sobriety, got a job, and I went to work, I went into the profession that I studied, which was engineering, I've been in it till I retired, and, and another state two years later, which I'll get to in a moment, but uh, it got to the point that, uh, after a while, uh, 
I got some sobriety, and after about a year and a half, I don't know about you, I began to hang around some people that uh, began to tell me, what take what I need and throw the rest away, and I began to think like they did, and uh, I got to the point that I was listening to the wrong people, and I was in the wrong environment, and uh, people that uh, tore down the big book and didn't have much to do with the steps, and I was running around with them, I began to think like they did, and, and then one night they called me in that inventory room. Uh, the old-timers and my sponsor, and... Uh, and I didn't like what they said to me. I was a year and a half sober. And uh, by this time, I had, uh, they'd finally let me talk in the group one night. And uh, Well, I don't, I want to tell you this, but uh, I'd been sober at that time about a year, I guess. And, and they finally, the steering committee met on me to talk. And uh, they, uh, one of the fellows in the boarding house had taken ill, got puny and started drinking and, uh, they brought him to meet my friends and uh, propped him up in the back. And I don't know, when I got up there, I just seemed like to me that I needed to talk to him. Of course, he didn't know what the hell I was saying. He was out, out of it. And I started a talk on how not to slip. I never heard of one, but uh, I started one. And uh, I'd been talking about 10 minutes, and I heard somebody say, sit down. And when you start raising sober, you don't, you don't hear those words. And so I kept on going, and finally... He said, sit down again, and I didn't hear him, and finally he came to the podium and grabbed me by the hand and said, I said, sit down, and he led me away <laughs> down the aisle, and of course, my fellow members' eyes were big, you know, and as I was walking along the aisle, the thought came to me, well, I got too much power for him tonight, and he don't want me to overdo it. That's all it is. <laughs> now, you can begin to think how I was feeling and uh, what I was thinking, and uh and sure enough, I, I went back and sat on what we called the back rows where the old timer sat. We called it Humility Road. And I <laughs> sat with them. But it was a few days later they called me. I mean, a few months later they called me in that room and, uh, and they took me in inventory. And the sum result was that, uh, they told me that, uh, unless I started getting honest myself and start working these 12 steps, that I was going to get drunk. And that's the hell of a thing to tell the backbone of the group that it's going to get drunk. But, uh, <laughs> That's what they told me. I got mad and resented it, and uh, told I got ready to tear out the room, and my sponsor stopped and says, I want to ask you one question before you leave. And the question was this, when was the last time you thanked God for a day of sobriety? And that made me matter, and I left. And uh, me, to me, at that time, God there was more or less a question mark in the sky. After a year and a half sobriety, a question mark, maybe yes, maybe no. And I went back to that boarding house, shut myself up in the room, and, you know, I wanted to do something to him. You know what I mean? The thought of taking a drink never crossed my mind, but I wanted to do something to them. I wanted to twist something. So I sat down and wrote a written resignation to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, uh, as I was in this composition, I, I kept hearing my sponsor's voice. It was kind of like an echo. It got louder and louder. When was the last time you thanked God for this sobriety? And finally, and finally, I was forced to my knees to pray to a God, really and truly, I didn't know much about after a year and a half sobriety. It was a juvenile prayer, really. Just help me. Help me. And as a result of this juvenile prayer, I was able to walk into a bathroom and look at myself for the first time in my adult life and know what I really was, that I was just a speck on this universe and someday I'll die and soon be forgotten. And if I wanted sobriety, the only way I had to go was through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'd tried everything else. And so I, the next night I went back 
had to eat some crow, but I rejoined Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I rejoin once a year now, and I rejoin every year that I get a chip because it means a lot to me. Along in 59, uh, in order for me to get a divorce from my first wife, I had to move back to North Carolina. And my first sponsor made arrangements for the second man to take me over, and, and I believe in sponsorship, and the man that took me over then was one of the first 100 members of native New Yorkers who was living in Raleigh. And, and, uh, and he was the man that ran the big book down my throat, and I got real active in service, and being around this man learned a lot about the program. And uh, he gave me a great lesson about standing behind one of these podiums. I don't know about y'all, but I'll tell you how I feel about it. Uh, I'd been I'd been about five years sober, and I'd start going to some of these conferences and retreats and so forth, and the weekend affairs, and I watched these jokers stand up here and talk. And got through, and everybody clapped like hell, some of them hugged and kissed and all that stuff, and I thought, man, these look pretty good. <laughs> so one night after the meeting in Raleigh, after I moved to Raleigh, and uh, Sue and I were married by then, uh, I had told Tom, and they had a, a little ante room too, they called it a conference room, but it was more or less an inventory room, and I uh, told Tom, I want to speak to him a minute, if you didn't mind, and he said, well, go in the room, we'll sit and talk. And he was one of these people made you sit down, and he stood up and talked down at you. You know what I mean? And he said, what's the problem, Dave? And I said, well, I think I'm a convention speaker. Well, <laughs> I can't repeat what he said from the podium, but I'll tell you this. He said, uh, well, what it amounted to is that I would not talk anymore unless he told me. For three years, I was not allowed to speak behind the podium. Now, I could discuss in meetings, but I couldn't make a talk. And uh, that's the truth. And it was good for me as I look back now. I didn't think so at that time because I felt like a lot of people were missing the message. You know what I mean. And, <laughs> and so... Uh, I'd been sober uh, about close to eight years, and uh, he called me one night and said, come over to the house, I want to talk to you. Said, you know, what the hell have I done now? Here we go, bring Sue with you. So we go over, and I go in one room, and Sue and Mark are going out, and we sit down. I sit down, and he stands up. He said, Dave, he said, you're going down to Columbia, South Carolina, to talk at the state convention. You do this, you do this, you do this. Tell me everything to do. Before you go, there's something I want to tell you. They asked me to go first. I can't go. You're going as a damn substitute, and don't you ever forget it as long as you live. <laughs> and so, uh, as I stand here before you, I, I'm probably a substitute. That's all right with me. <laughs> That's the way I feel about it, really and truly. Now, I've been uh, sober for a while, and maybe saw somebody in this room this morning that began to wonder about this thing called sobriety, wonder about AA. It, will it work? Will it work? Well, maybe you got to do like I had to do after about a year and a half sobriety. Get honest with yourself. Get honest with yourself. Because I found out that was my problem, really and truly. Just get honest. You know, I heard a man say many years ago, way back in my early sobriety, when Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth in the body of a man, he didn't say, I'm a truthful man. He said, I am the truth. I really believe. I really believe that from this source and this root, we inherited the program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I've seen enough in my time and age not only to believe, but to know that there is a power behind this universe that stands ready to help you and I if we're willing to help ourselves. I don't care where you come from. If you have the ability to be honest with yourself, you can find this program if you want. And in the beginning, I called it the man upstairs. Today, as I stand before you, I call it the God of my understanding. The God that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous by you, by your love for me. The God, you know, I, I've been around for a while. And uh, I think my sobriety is God-given. I've had a lot of things that happen. 
And one of the greatest things that happened is my mother's love for Alcoholics Anonymous. It took nine and a half years for my mother ever to accept me back in her life as a son after I got sober. She couldn't understand how I could do this for a bunch of strangers, and I couldn't do it for her. She didn't understand and later on, there's a long story behind that, but she got interested in AA through some friends and found out what Alcoholics Anonymous was about and, and came, became a great, great friend of AA. And those fellows down in my hometown, they, they never called me to come down there and talk. They'd call her. <laughs> and, and I'd get a call. I told them you'd come. And uh, by God, when Mama says you, you go. And uh, <laughs> I lost my mother 33 years ago. And she lived to see me sober 32 years. And this is a woman that, uh, you know, AA changes everybody. It changes its civilians. It changes its members. And it changes this woman. And I found out then that, the, you know, uh, we talk about love in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I found out about a love I never knew before at this time. Uh, people are, you know, uh, friends of my family. My sis two sisters didn't understand all these people in AA. They'd been to some meetings with me, but they didn't understand this thing called love. Until my mother, when she was buried, and the AAs that showed up, they just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe I had that many friends. And as I stand here before you, I know that my sobriety is God-given. I know for a fact that there's still certain things I have to do. I have to do in spite of being sober for a while. One of the things I have to do is, that, you know, I have to continue to work at this problem. When I came to you... When I came to you, the first, second, third day, I told you I was willing to go any length to get this program. And today, as I stand before you, sometimes I have to say that too. Because sometimes I get a call in the middle of the night and some guy, guy wants some help. And I begin to think, you know, maybe they can wait after breakfast. <laughs> and those three men that night that stayed with me all night long, they didn't dump me off and say, we'll be back after breakfast. I wonder what would happen if they had. The second thing I have to do is I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's where it's at. That's where it's at. Where I have to sit down and share eyeball to eyeball with my fellow members. I really believe that what we do is we just survive among individual egos is what we do. And I sit there and share and they know, they know my members of that group and I think it's the best and you think the same about you. They know what makes me tick. And I have to walk like a talk because they know me. I have to walk like a talk. I'm the oldest member in the group and, uh, but they know, they, you know, they cut me down to size. They cut me down to size about every day. But that's what should be done. And uh, it's the little people in the group. And when I say the little people, I mean anybody that comes in. There's a couple I've been working with for years. And uh, named Vernon and Gertrude. And it's, it's these kind of people. Let me give you an illustration. Vernon and Gertrude have been married for about 16 years. They had some, well, Gertrude now has got about 10 years sobriety. And Vernon's still working on another year. He should have 35. <laughs> And uh, they'd been married for several years, and this was several years ago, and we had a Christmas Eve meeting. We were on the eighth step talking, and uh, they let me lead the meeting, and there wasn't many people there. They didn't have no driver's license. I'd make them call me to pick them up. You know, I wouldn't call them, say, I'd make them call me to pick them up, carry them to the meeting, and carry them back. And so one night after the meeting, we were giving it, that Christmas Eve, and I'd give them to carry them back home, and uh, we got in the car. Now, they'd been married for several years. And uh, Gertrude says to Vernon, Vernon. We've been on the eighth step. When are you going to make some amends to me? <laughs> Never forgot it. Didn't smile anything. He said, Gertrude, hell, you're not even on my list, honey. 
Yeah, uh, that's the kind I have to be around. And uh, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the third thing I have to do is I have to uh, I have to work these twelve steps to the best of my ability. You know, there's a person I would like for you to see in me, and 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 then there's a person you probably see in me. And then there's a person I see in my life, in myself, and that's what the whole deal is about, what I see in myself. And through these 12 steps, I found out, you know, it says in my book that we're granted a daily reprieve continued upon the maintenance of our sobriety. I really believe that as long as I've been trying to work these 12 steps, that my spiritual condition has improved. Because I found the God of my understanding, the God that I call, the same God that you refer to, the God the Father of mankind. And the fourth thing I have to do is some days I just have to hang on and do the best I can. You know what I'm talking about. There are days like that. And my early sobriety, they told me there were going to be days that I just have to hang on and do the best I can. And there have been some of those days, <clears throat> and somehow or another I just feel like that yesterday is my experience, and tomorrow is my hope, and today is going from one to the other and doing the best I can. And as long as I can walk hand in hand with you, <clears throat> Down this happy road of destiny that we speak of in Alcoholics Anonymous, I do believe that I'll be annihilated another day of sobriety, as long as I can do it one day at a time with you. Coincidence? <clears throat> Is it a coincidence that I see some people here this morning that I've known just about all my sobriety? Is it a coincidence that we gather here this morning to, to talk about caring and sharing? Well, if it is a coincidence, I simply define a coincidence as an act of God in the midst of time. The same God that's been doing for you and I, that which we could not do for ourselves, the God the Father of all mankind. There's a few lines in the big book to sum up the whole deal for me. I never close a talk that I don't mention. I wish they were my words, uh, but they're not. <clears throat> and he explains the whole thing in just a few simple words, and it tells you the story. It tells you my story of Alcoholics Anonymous, what it was like, and what it's like now, where I'm going. And it goes something like this. This great experience, that released me from the bondage of hatred and replaced it with love is just another affirmation of the truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous and everything I need I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother.